The reason that our country is in the mess that it is in today is not because of the Republicans, it's not because of the Democrats. Let me tell you this, it's because of lame Christians. There is a reproach that comes with being a follower of Christ. We in America have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture. A church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with Christ. The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The wolf is this country. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in to political correctness. One of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have a fascinating subject to cover today, but first, please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform on which you listen to us upon we have several social media platforms with all sorts of material that you can listen to and read. Be sure to check out our fan page on Facebook when you type in the search bar the at symbol Mighty Fortress 313. Of course, if you're listening through our YouTube page, please go ahead and click that like button and subscribe to the channel. It sure really helps the channel grow and you've already heard about the vicious YouTube algorithms. You can also take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com. There you'll have all the media hosted, and we have articles there, and devotionals, and videos, and even a link to our merch store to help support the work. But of course, if you do feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, feel free to do so through our website and the established PayPal link. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I would like to talk about our ancient historical Christian roots going back through time to show how God Almighty protected and brought up his church. This is going to be an absolutely fascinating subject. I am completely uh, history buff and I'm very detailed and, and studied in these various areas. I can give plenty of resources so you can do your own studies but i just don't want this to be informative i want it to be very encouraging because we can see the grace and mercy of god with christians all throughout history even in the most trying of times there are several different christian groups that we're going to talk about as this series continues on as well in this series i will talk about the good the bad and the ugly Though some of it may be pretty hard to hear at various points, it's going to be good for our souls. Give us a good reminder of where we come from. I will say that it won't be in any particular historical order, but I'll try not to bounce around too much. We'll eventually make our way back all the way to the Church Fathers, but stay tuned for that one. I'm not going to have this in a consecutive series back to back to back, but we'll do each group or go back through history as time progresses on. In part one of this series, 
it is going to revolve around two peoples that God used to lay the foundation for Western Christianity. And these believers would spread the gospel across the European peninsula, and arguably even farther than that. The two major sects of people are known as the Albigenses of southern France and the Waldenses of northern Italy. These groups are said to have what we would call Baptistic beliefs, and this has been a subject of much debate. We will look into these writings of these peoples, as well as what their enemies wrote about them in that same time period. We're going to really find out some truth about what these people believed. With that introduction, let's get right into this. The first subject that I'm going to have to address to make sure that we're all on the same page of what I'm talking about in context as we walk through history is what are Baptistic beliefs? In his book, Why Baptist, James Alter wrote, quote, In practicing our obedience, Baptists have been distinct from every other faith. When we speak of our distinctiveness, we do not mean to imply that we are somehow the sole possessors of all truth, only that we hold to clear biblical truth without the admixture of error from church tradition, church councils, papal bulls, or state decrees, end quote. Acronyms and acrostics are very powerful learning tools. And I know this personally given my history in the United States military because they're full of acronyms and that type of thing because that's how we learn to remember various protocols and different types of training. The acrostic that is normally given for a brief understanding of Baptistic beliefs correlates with the word Baptist. Now think of it like this. If you would take Baptist and just kind of put it down, uh, write it downwards, and we'll take each letter and it kind of sums up Baptistic beliefs. It's, it's kind of neat how this correlates, but we're going to use this just kind of get on the same page of what I'm talking about. The letter B, you can think about biblical authority. This means that the Bible is the authority in all matters of faith and practice because it was inspired by God and he alone has the authority over men for this. This means that Baptists do not accept any human decrees or counsels as like they're from God. The letter A stands for the autonomy of the local church. The church is a called out assembly of born again and baptized believers that is local and independent from any hierarchical structure as practiced, like say, by the Catholic Church. The P is for the priesthood of the believer. This means that the individual Christian can go straight to God instead of going to God through some priest. Now that's a big deal through history, and we're going to see some of that. Some of the next ones here are huge controversies throughout history. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and him alone as our mediator, as given in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, which says, quote, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. End quote. The T is for the two ordinances of the church, only with baptism and the Lord's Supper. Many, many people have been murdered over this very thing. We will talk about this for sure. 
The whole reason Baptists have their name is because of the belief of full water immersion baptism, which is contrary to the popular Catholic Church's view of sprinkling a person. Baptism and the Lord's Supper do not have uh, or really save an individual, but rather are demonstrations of obedience and remembrance. The letter I stands for the individual soul liberty. Romans chapter 14 and verse 5 says this, quote, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. End quote. This means that God has given us free will and we should not be forced to attend church or given any other belief. God is not one of control. He gives man and woman minds to think for themselves. The letter S stands for saved membership. We see that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. Unbelievers can be taking control of the devil by at any time, and they can't be a part of the body of Christ. This is very important. You have to be born again, and born again believers make up the church. The second T is for two offices consisting of the pastor and the deacon. We find that in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. And the final S stands for a separation of church and state. We see this in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. This one's particularly interesting. It says, quote, Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. It's talking about Jesus. And they sent out unto their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceiveth or perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought to him a penny. And he said unto him, Who is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled, and left him, and went their way. End quote. Now this is not to say, this has actually been taken out of context much, especially in the foundation of America. This is not to say that Christianity cannot be the moral and religious foundation of a nation. But it's to say that one particular church or organization is to dictate over others and use the power of the state to do so. This has been a major, major problem in history. And from power conflicts to politics and, and those types of things, when the church gets overly involved in, in the aspect of politicking, that gets to be very, very dirty and, and corruption just really comes out. Now, this acrostic really, in each of these different subjects, I can have a whole podcast unto itself in the history and the doctrines. I mean, we, do, we may do some of these uh, in the near future. But this describes what we would say are Baptistic beliefs. And the general Baptist church today would understand and agree with these according to the word of God. And now that we've built that foundation, 
the people that we're going to zero in on are the Albigenses and the Waldenses because they're two very fascinating Christian groups. The origin of the Albigenses is unknown, but some say that they may be linked to a transplanting of some of the Pollocan and Bogomil groups coming from the east. That's, that's difficult to demonstrate as fact, but there are several factors to consider about the kinds of Christians living in southern France and northern Italy at this time. And the reason why I say that it's difficult, because history wasn't really tracked and written like what we do today. In our Western world, we write history to record people's histories because we can. We have an interest and fascination in doing these types of things. But generally, histories were not written for civilizations. And when they were, it was only for a particular period of time or purpose. And they didn't always talk about those that are outside the civilization. So history at various points can get kind of rough to figure out what actually took place. And this is what historians are supposed to do to try to help determine and interpret what happened during these time periods to kind of paint a more vivid story. What is known for fact is that when the then Pope Innocent III in 1209 AD to 1229 AD engaged in a crusade to utterly destroy the people of southern France known as the Cathars. Now when I say France, when you look at France today, you see that entirety of the nation. Now, think of it at this time in the 1200s as being kind of split in half. Not quite, uh, you know, that symmetrical 50-50, but pretty basic that way. Kind of split in half. The northern part was considered France. The southern part was considered the kingdom of Toulouse. And it was ruled by the Cathars or the, the people of Albi or the Albigenses. The first part of history we have to look at is understand a more rounded opinion of the Albigenses, and that goes back several hundred years. In the 9th century AD, so we're looking at the 800s AD or so, the Bishop of Turin named Claudius had a lot of problems with the bishops of Rome over the various doctrines and corruption. Now think of it at this time that there was a gap of what we will call the Dark Ages of when the Western Roman Empire fell and all the barbarian tribes that ruled Western Europe. There was just so much utter chaos that, that went on till about 700 AD or so. And it's actually pretty fascinating because it was Charlemagne that really propped up the remnants of the now the then Catholic Church and the Catholic Church brought the religious aspect along with the secular king and forged them together uh, that something that hasn't been seen since the time of Constantine around the 300s AD and when they did that you then have now had the Holy Roman Empire start to be formed and he was a Holy Roman Emperor and we, we had that kind of play out so in the southern part of what we would consider modern France today, the southeastern part of it, there's a place called Turin. And there was a bishop there whose name was Claudius, and that's who we're talking about. 
it's not certain how long the differences had gone on between the Roman Catholic Church and Claude, but what we do know was there was a major difference in doctrinal beliefs between them. He was a he was appointed by Holy Roman Emperor Louis, the third son of Charlemagne. Claude was a believer of the scriptures, and he became a scholar writing many commentaries on various biblical books. Bishop Claudius even went so far to remove all images set up in the churches that he presided over to include crosses themselves because he believed that they were idolatry. Now that's absolutely fascinating because we're talking about a very primitive aspect of what you could even call the Catholic Church, but he wasn't even really a part of that. This affected much of southern France and northern Italy where Claude presided. So impactful was Claude of Turin was that he was called the Wycliffe of his day. I mean, we may talk about John Wycliffe at a later time. The Catholic Church was only beginning to recover from the barbarian invasions at this time. And so it hadn't really become the military might that it would become later on. So in about 800 AD or so, when Claude was doing these things, you didn't have crusades or that type of thing going on. Not till about the 1100s. And then we'll eventually fast forward to 1200, which takes part with the Albigensian Crusade. We'll talk about that later. But around 800 AD, Claude was able to do a lot of things. And there's a lot of people actually becoming born-again believers. Claude and his followers had lived and worshipped independently of Rome and its doctrines. So much so that it was only until... 1059 AD under Pope Nicholas II that many of those churches came back under Rome. The Lombard area, which is considered northern Italy, refused to capitulate to the demands of Petrius Demanius, or Bishop of Ostia, and was dispatched by the Pope to seek submission from the churches in, uh, to the, in this area to Rome. These churches lived outside Rome's rule for several centuries, but this, we're going to discuss this part later. What's important to note is that the influence of the anti-Roman sentiment presided in the area of southern France and would be known as the Albigenses. These people would be known as the Albigenses. What is known as fact is that the Albigenses were split into different sects. Now, there are some political writings to show that the Counts of Toulouse... There were different leaders at that time, or the dukes and the count, the counts. They had different, a different perception of how religion should go. They actually had a little bit more of what we consider religious freedom. Now, we're talking about a moderation of such. We're not talking about you know Muslims walking around that area or, or whatever else, or atheists, you know, self-professed atheists, but. They didn't really bring the sword upon anybody for their religious beliefs and the differences between uh, even, say, born-again believers and the Catholic Church. They didn't bring the sword then, but the Catholic Church was really pressuring them to do that, to gain control. In her book, History of the Renaissance World, Susan Bauer states, quote, Cathar beliefs were complicated, and the Cathars themselves had already split into more than one sect. Then Bauer goes on to make a sweeping generalization, but all Cathars were dualists, dividing all things in the universe into good and evil, light and dark. End quote. 
we know from history that at least one sect, when formally challenged by Catholic bishops, provided a confession of faith that was totally contrary to the so-called dualist belief and was Orthodox Christian in nature. The common complaint from the Catholics against the Albigenses were that they were dualists or they were Manichaean in their beliefs. But, you know, the only difference is that they did not receive Roman authority and they chose to separate themselves from the Catholic Church. And you have to understand at this time, in this context, the Roman Catholic Church was looking to control as much land and territory as possible. This is why you had the different crusades that would take place. It wasn't just about, you know, Christianity versus Muslims. Uh, that When people think of crusades, they think of the crusades going into the Middle East. But there was it was more than that. There were crusades that had nothing to do with Muslims. It is interesting to note that Dominic de Guzman, when trying to convert the Albigenses prior to the crusade, so we're fast-forwarding back to about the 1200s, so this Catholic friar, he said this, quote, It is not by the display of power and pomp, cavalcades and retainers and richly housed palfrey, or by gorgeous apparel that the heretics win proselytes. It is by zealous preaching, by apostolic apostolical humility by austerity by seeming it is true but yet seeming holiness end quote with the seemingly holiness of the albigenses making such an impact it is no wonder the catholic church felt threatened people were becoming born again believers and using the bible and and seeing the bible for themselves which the general catholic was not allowed to do at this time we have to understand that we have bibles galore today in our western world but at this time to have a bible was very pricey and even then if you could read it now charlemagne before this time had set up a lot of schools to teach reading and writing and that type of thing but there was still a lot of chaos and there still were a lot of uneducated people during the crusade against the albigenses there was a Cistercian monk named Peter de Varsernay, who wrote his book, Historia Albigenses, detailing the events between 1212 to 1218. So he accompanied a Catholic army marching in and, and attacking the various uh, castles of the Albigenses. One very interesting comment was made that gives a clue about both the Albigenses and the Waldenses in their doctrines. Now remember, this man was not a friend to the Albigenses. He was accompanying a Catholic army. Okay? He said, quote, that all the heretics of Narbongal were called Albigenses, and the least guilty among these were the Waldenses. End quote. The whole of the Albigenses were brought under the same verbal slander of being called Manichaeans or dualists and thus condemned by Rome no matter what variant beliefs there were. So the Albigenses and the Waldenses, you're going to see that they often intermingled with each other. And you can say, well, maybe there were just really different in their, different in their beliefs and maybe the Albigenses were truly dualists and the Waldenses were actually believers. Well, 
that's not true because the Waldenses, we read their writings. I'll talk about them more later. We see that they were a holy people. They took God very seriously. They would not have associated with blatant heretics. So the fact that they would even closely associate with the Albigenses tells you about more of the beliefs of the Albigenses than anything. Now, there is evidence that there, because you think about southern France going in towards Spain, uh, especially, that there was a mix of beliefs because of the, um, the rise of Islam and those types of uh, Islam was taking off during this time and conquering, especially in northern Africa and the trade that would take place. So there were a little bit of different beliefs the more you go west into Spain. And even if you could pin evidence of some sects that might have been Manichaeans, but as stated previously, it couldn't have applied to all sects given that they had produced a confession of Orthodox faith. That's important to note, being that all sects, to include the Waldensians, opposed Rome, it was just easier by the Catholic bishops to label them all heretics. And ironically enough, so many of the modern church history books say the same exact thing, which is unbelievable given that the historical writings of the people themselves tell a different story. It tells you that a lot of these church history books are full of garbage and lies. And it really uh, is just tainted by Catholic and Protestant propaganda. I mean, you can say, well, what makes you think that they're wrong? Okay, well, look at what the people wrote themselves. That's why we have history. You can go and you can see what they wrote specifically and what they believed. We're going to deal with more of that later. These leaders would not give allegiance to the popes of Rome, and thus, with their overall rebellion, Pope Innocent III called for the utter destruction of the entire area. Now, keep this in mind, too. Remember I said that the northern part of that region, of what we think of modern France, like I said, think of the region of the region of modern France, kind of split it in half. The northern part was actually called France at that time. Well, they were looking to expand south and expand their territory, so they would land their armies towards the Crusade because they were generally Catholic, strict Catholics. So they would lend their armies to it, but the the goal was for France to expand to that entire region. Now, of course, you're going to know how this story plays out because they would succeed. <laughs> and the whole entire region is called France today. What's even more interesting that the Albigenses, they had not only Orthodox beliefs, but that also included the rejection of infant baptism. Infant baptism arose during the time of Augustine when he lived around the 300s AD or so. It's not fully known if they used water immersion or sprinkling as an adult, but this sect believed the autonomy of the church and they rejected the Roman papist system. They believed that infants could not be baptized because they couldn't even understand the gospel. And to believe, um, they thought that people had an individual soul liberty. Now, that's pretty amazing. The two ordinances that they believe were baptism and the Lord's Supper, but not the same way that the Catholic Church taught it. They rejected the transubstantiation the, or the 
turning of the wafer into the flesh of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ, the literal blood of Christ. That's absolutely insane. One can discern that they had pastors, uh, but nothing is mentioned of deacons. And the more that you learn about these people, you start to look at and say, you know, I, I don't think they were the so-called heretics that the Catholics of that time made them out to be. Or some of our modern church uh, history books. I've got a bunch on my wall. I have a whole room, just a dedicated library. I got a massive section of history books. And I can tell you there's a lot of modern church history books that will call the Albigenses and the Waldenses heretics and say all sorts of things. But it's not true. You can read the writings for them for yourself. Read their writings for yourself. Now, going back to the Bishop Claude of Turin, there seemed to have been an implantation of Christian beliefs outside the Catholic conventional sense in the area of Lombardy. So now we're going back to 800 AD. Okay, the influence of Claude of Turin and all the churches that he presided over and the doctrines of Christ that he taught, the area of Lombardy or northern Italy, you had a lot of influence there of biblical beliefs, uh, biblical Christianity. While the plains may have been easily conquered, the villages and towns in the Alps of the mountains, uh, the mountain range, the Alps of northern Italy, you, you just couldn't walk, march an army in there and start conquering them all. It's a very tough terrain. The Alps provided protection for centuries against the persecution of the people that would become known as the Waldenses. Their name derived from the valleys or the Vaux in northern Italy with the transliteration of the letter V in Valdoi or Valenses or later uh, transliterated Waldenses. You have a switch of the V and the W. So you can say Valenses or uh, Valdenses and it would be synonymous. It can be kind of confusing because you have the mixture or the back and forth of German, Latin, and French. So there's a little bit of word history there where the W can be pronounced a V and other languages. But English, which is kind of fascinating, English took on more of a French sound and uh, how they use J and W and that, and that type of thing. Because of this, it's caused a little confusion as to whether Peter Waldo or Peter Valdez was the origin of the Waldenses or his last name was a reflection of where he resided in the valleys of the Piedmont. You'll read some histories that say that, well, it's Peter Waldo or Valdo. And really, if you look at the word, it's Valdez, that he was the originator of the people known as the, the Waldenses, but history is a little bit more complicated than that. And like I said, when you look back at the influence of Claude of Turin, you could already see biblical churches in the area. The Catholic writer Marco Aurelio in 1630 said, quote, the Waldenses are so ancient as to afford no absolute certainty as to their precise time of their origin, but that in the ninth and 10th centuries, they were not a new sect, end quote. Now, that's fascinating because they'll say, you know, a lot of historians will say, oh, well, Peter Waldo created the Waldenses in the, the 1100s. But you've got Catholic writers who aren't exactly fans of these people, okay, 
they're not exactly pro Waldenses. They're saying quite the opposite in those time periods. Very fascinating. There's also <laughs> accusations where the Bishop Claudius of Turin was said to even have been a Waldensian. <laughs> Peter Waldo of Lyon, the person that revolves around this people group, was a merchant and banker that had given up all of his wealth after one of his got hit one of his guests died at one of his parties. After reading Matthew nineteen twenty one, he took that verse literally and devoted himself to the scriptures, and became a traveling evangelist, teaching his teaching and preaching, and he would tell people that they have to give up everything in order to take up the cross and follow Christ. He worked along the peoples of the valleys and spread the gospels into many and spread the gospel into many countries. Many after him who were called the poor man of Lyon preached the same. This only strengthened the Waldensian movement and it grew exponentially. So by the time we get to the Albigensian crusade of the 1200s, you already had a very strong Christian presence in northern Italy and going all straight, straight across of southern France. So when the Catholic crusade uh, crusader armies marched against the Count of Toulouse and the and the Dutch the duchies I should say of Toulouse that war lasted for 20 years because the people fought back and beat back the Catholic armies ultimately the Catholics would win by treachery in a way basically kind of what happened was they got so tired of fighting they're saying well let's try something a little different there was some pushing of the Muslims from the east and so they said well let's let's take a break and call a truce and maybe we can work together type of thing and and then they're like oh okay and <laughs> and the Catholics betrayed them and, and took over their area as silly as that sounds that's pretty uh, simplistic but that's kind of what happened in a way but the war had just it had lasted for 20 years so I can imagine, you know, a lot of people were tired of fighting as it was. The Catholic armies would, in fact, do their job and slaughter man, woman, child and burn books and writings of the Albigensian people. That's why there's not detailed evidence as much as we have as, say, for the Waldensians about the uh, Albigenses because the slaughter and destruction was so great. But what we do know specifically and it's recorded that the albigensians the refugees from the destruction came to northern italy and the alps and came and resided with the waldenses now keep this in mind that the waldensians were very strict holy people they took god very very seriously god in the scriptures very seriously so they would not have associated with heretics like that especially blatant heretics if they were in fact the so-called duelists the Catholic Crusaders had called them. What it really was, remember, they just opposed the authority of Rome. Now let's switch to the Waldensians and what they believe and how close they were to what we call Baptistic beliefs today. The beliefs of these peoples are written by Protestant and Catholics alike, and they're pretty close in agreement. The following that I'm going to quote is from a Catholic named Pius Melia. He was not a supporter of the Waldenses, okay? And in his book, 
he's writing against them, refuting them with Catholic doctrines and that type of thing. But what's fascinating about his book is that he's telling you exactly what these people believed. And it's absolutely fascinating because this is written by an enemy. He doesn't have skin in the game besides to basically uh, prove his own side. But as far as what he said that the Waldensians believed, he gives you a list. Let's talk about this list. It's the tenets of Waldensianism. The first Waldensian tenet is that the Church of God has failed. This means that the church, little by little over the years, has lost its holiness before God. It's talking about the Catholic Church of the time. The second tenet is that no other prayer is to be said except the Lord's Prayer. Now, we'll keep this in context, too. We're talking about different kind of prayers that would be done in Catholic religion and that, and that type of thing. That's the context. The third tenet is that the Holy Scriptures alone are sufficient to guide men to salvation. Wow, that's huge. Think about this in history. They'll, the main, mainstream church history books, I have them on my wall. They'll tell you that the uh, salvation by faith, by grace alone, didn't come until the Protestant Reformation. And that's in the 1500s AD. This is way before that. And this is written by a Catholic. Keep this in mind. So... The, the the Catholic is saying, the Catholic writer is saying that the Waldensians believed that the Holy Scriptures alone were sufficient to guide men to salvation. The fourth tenet was that blessings and consecrations practiced in the church do not bestow any sanctity upon persons. Uh, this deals with like baptismal waters, unctions, you know, holy oils or holy uh, water, that type of thing. The fifth tenet is that Catholic priests have no authority and the Pope is the Antichrist. <laughs> that is awesome. I mean, that you can't get more blatant than that. They were very anti-Rome. <laughs> the sixth tenet is everyone has the right to preach the word of God publicly and not just specific to the laity. Now, this is pretty unique for their time period because Rome would say, well, you have to be a monk or a priest in order to be able to preach because they would be the ones that have the word of God. And it's written in Latin at that time. And so the common people didn't even uh, understand what was being read to them. The priest would interpret the word. So the general persons never understood. The seventh deals with every person being able to hear confessions of someone's sin. Of course, if you're familiar with Catholic doctrine, they have confession booths where you have to talk to a priest and the priest is the one that forgives you of your sin. Well, anybody, any Christian brother or sister, you can confess sin and, you know, you go straight to God and ask them for forgiveness. So you make it right with that believer or you talk to him about how you transgressed against God and you know, you can pray to the Lord for forgiveness. You didn't need a priest as some sort of intermediary. The eighth and ninth are that every oath and every lie is a mortal sin. A major tenet of the Waldenses was that they believed that Catholic purgatory was just an invention from the 6th century. Now, <laughs> that is true, by the way. And it's funny that they were able to nail it down to the 6th century. 
that that's pretty fascinating. Now keep this in mind that there's not a lot of history writing going on going on at this time, but they were able to pin the invention of purgatory to the sixth century, which is actually true. They also included the sales of indulgences indulgences later uh, by the Catholics as an invention as well. You see that in later writings. The next tenet is that there is no obligation to fast or keep any other day but Sunday holy before God. So there's no Lent or, you know, Good Friday or whatever other holy days the Catholics would invent. Just that Sunday, the every that one day a week, that was to be consecrated and holy before God. They didn't believe in the worship of saints or the worship of idols. And of course, that's contrary to mainstream Catholic belief. And the last tenet that was recorded was that to kill a man was a mortal sin and therefore believed their pastors or barbs as they called them must abstain from violence that's pretty fascinating when you think about it the idea that pastors um, would abstain from say military service or violence in general we kind of do that today in our u.s military chaplains don't carry firearms they actually have a chaplain's assistant that will come with them and carry firearms to help protect them but the chaplain themselves would not carry weapons it's pretty fascinating that that belief is you know you see that throughout history the waldensians were both baptizers of immersion and sprinkling though their discrepancies whether sprinkling can actually be a tenant and not just a certain village capitulating to Roman ways. What I mean by that is that the closer you got into Rome, you had more Roman influence. So there may be some there may have been some Waldensian villages that may have allowed sprinkling to take place. But primarily the belief of uh, baptism by water immersion, full water immersion was the commonplace belief. Not to mention, they were very missionary-oriented. And what's absolutely fascinating about these people is that they translated Bibles into what's called the Romant language, which is it's like an Italian variant of a common-speak language. They would dress as peddlers and merchants so they can gain the audience of both small and great alike. And it's kind of interesting because... They would, say, be merchants, and they would come up to a castle. Well, the Lord would let them in and be like, so they can bring their wares and, and goods in to sell. And they would then start speaking of the gospel and, and the, uh, you know, bring out the word of God. And the people would be fascinated because no one at that time was allowed to even read the word of God, let alone have it outside the Latin language. So people were generally fascinated they could actually read the Bible for themselves. And so a lot of people got saved. You had the spread of Christianity all through Europe because of the missionary efforts of the Waldenses. And you can definitely make connections through the centuries to the people called the Anabaptists or the Rebaptizers. Uh, that was just before the Protestant Reformation. They, there's a lot of roots of, you know, they'll say, well, these people, they just stemmed out of Protestantism. But the missionary efforts of the Waldenses spread these kind of beliefs well before the 
uh, the rise of the Anabaptists, and the Anabaptists can seem to have their root from those missionary efforts. And I tell you what, that's very convicting for us today because these people were dedicated to the uh, propagating of the gospel, getting the gospel out there uh, under punishment of death. It was law that you could not have the word of God, let alone written in the common tongue language. If you had a Bible, you could be put to death during this time. It's kind of strange for us to say that now, given that we have Bibles everywhere and all sorts of different languages. But back then, it, it that was a death sentence. And you would be murdered in the most brutal ways if you were found with a Bible, let alone a Bible translated into the common tongue. The Waldensian movement would spread throughout Europe despite the heavy persecution from the 1400s through the 1800s. One must note that much like the Albigenses of the past, the Waldensians were called Manichaeans as well throughout history. And like I said, it was just the, the easy slander that the Catholics used upon their opponents. Where the history of the Albigenses was mostly eradicated by the Catholic Crusades, records of the Waldenses are numerous, and these people still exist today in, in uh, southern Europe. When one reads the history of these people, they can't help but be moved by the observation of God's power exercised upon them. There were modern-day miracles that God used to deliver these people from the armies of the popes as well. We'll talk more of that about that in future episodes. The question is whether Waldensians can be considered Baptistic. Well, given that they fit all of the tenets that we who are Baptistic in our beliefs would hold today, the conclusion is, is that they were. While most Baptists today are not, you know, uh, they don't consider, you know, killing or lying as mortal sins or the prayer to be said, the only prayer to be said is the Lord's Prayer. I mean, you could say that those would be differences today among brethren, but the rest of the core doctrines are the same. This could be said like the difference between, say, a Calvinist Baptist and Bible-believing Baptist. It's a discussed and debated the foundation of the Anabaptists came from Waldensian missionaries in the 15th century. We talked about that before. And given that we have such a detailed history of just these two people, of the Albigenses and especially the Waldensians, it just eradicates a lot of these arguments that are given or these timelines given in some of these church history books. It really is just such a tragic thing. And it just goes to show that Satan's really working against uh, biblical Christianity and the truth that's out there. The truth that's propagated is that, oh, well, everybody stems out of the Catholic Church. And the idea is that everybody would come back to the Catholic Church as not Pope Frankie uh, himself, but the Pope before, I forget his name. But he said that all the children of the Reformation are coming back to the mother. And we didn't come out of the Catholic or the Protestant Reformation. Biblical Christianity had always been there all along. And as we progress through this series, we're going to absolutely see that. But these two people groups were a massive, massive influence in Europe, especially the Waldensian people have a long and outstanding history of standing against the Catholic Church and holding their ground 
indoctrinal beliefs, and they can truly be called Baptist brethren. So in conclusion, I you can say that you know this topic goes back so far through the annals of history that you know it, it can it gets hard discerning the facts. The time period it was just chaotic, just very very chaotic. And the further you go back, when there was just less order and more of the barbarian tribes that would rule, it was it's very hard to find truth. It really is. And so sometimes you'll have splotches of history that's recorded. Sometimes it's close together. Sometimes it's overlapped. Sometimes there's little, you know, dark periods where we don't know what happened between those periods. But they're kind of splotched. But one thing's for sure. The records that we do have demonstrate that Satan could not stamp out God's church. And... Christian believers stood up for the word of God and they were successful in doing so throughout history. Both the Albigenses and the Waldensians alike would agree with the modern Baptist that the Catholic Church is a part of the great whore of Babylon and Antichrist. While that might be strange given a few of their beliefs, uh, you know, considering them Baptists today, the Albigenses can be considered Christian brethren that stood against the Catholic Church and they paid the ultimate price. The Waldensians could be considered Baptists and, in many ways, contributed to the official founding of Baptists a few centuries later. The truly amazing grace of God working through believers throughout the centuries. Utterly astounding. I want to thank you for listening. And be sure to follow us on the podcast media. Take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com, and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content, and remember to find your refuge and strength in our mighty fortress.